Okay, so lecture number one is posted on our website. If you go to our ministries, go down to Harvest Theological Education, and it will be in there, so you can listen to that at your leisure. And um, this course is entitled The Church, the Holy Spirit, and Christian Worship. And basically, the, the idea is, we, as I shared with you last week, I think the simplest way to understand the church is the church really is the story of what God is doing in the world and what he plans to do in the future. So because you're part of the church, if you're a Christian, you should be interested in this because it's the story of what God is doing in you, in spite of you, through you, hopefully. And so that's the church. And then when we talk about the church, the story of what God's doing in the world, the primary agent that God uses to work in the life of the church in this age is the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that is operatively work, working in our lives, convict, well, first of all, converting, and then saving, convicting, encouraging, rebuking. So we need to learn who the Holy Spirit is and how to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then because our view is a vertical view that uh, everything that we do exists for the glory of God, when we do some stuff that exists for the glory of God and bring God glory, what we're doing is worshiping. So can you kind of see how these three things tie together? So we could kind of maybe do a little illustration here. If you just draw, we'll just do the old traditional church symbol. This is God's story. Okay, so this is God's story. God's working in the world. He's calling a people unto himself. He's building a spiritual kingdom. You're part of it, along with many others. Don't be so individualistic as to think it's all about you. Okay, you're, you're part of God's story. God works in the lives of believers through the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's only one Holy Spirit, but you get the point. And we respond back, how? With worship to God. Okay, so this is why I've chosen these three topics, because they all kind of tie together. So what we did last week is we looked at a theology or several theological notions relating to the church. So we talked about how churches are structured. We talked about views on baptism, views on communion. We talked about the differences and the similarities between Israel and the church as the people of God. And we covered a lot of territory, I think. Tonight we're going to kind of think a little more practically about how the church functions, what our priorities are, what are we supposed to be like doing. So this is more of the practical side. We're going to have a little discussion. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. So we're going to start with the thumb workout. Okay, get your thumbs going because we're going to we're going to be flipping a lot of pages or pushing a lot of buttons. Okay, so you get get your thumbs going here. We're going to look at a lot of different scripture passages tonight. And uh, that's kind of where we're headed. So let's, uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. And um, then I want to hear from four of you what is bringing you joy in your life. And then we're going to get started, okay? 
Father God, we're thankful that we can come into this place and by learning, worship you. We pray that our understanding of the church would be fine-tuned so that we can understand who we are and what you're doing. We pray that we would understand who the Holy Spirit is and that we would respond appropriately to the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would drive us into a life of worship. Help us not to be reductionistic, viewing worship merely as an hour or so on a Sunday morning, but help us to understand that the whole purview of our lives really is one of worship, where we are constantly seeking to bring glory to you. We pray, Lord, that we would love you, love one another, and be salt and light in this very broken world, that we would truly be the kind of people that you want us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, let's encourage one another. What's bringing you joy? The sun. The sun. Yes. And could we add to that the longer days? <laughs> awesome. Good. The sun's bringing you joy. What else? Awesome. Good. Very good. And what else? What else is bringing you to joy? Every day I come home and I hear the pitter patter of my daughter, my two year old's feet running in the woods. Okay, good. Good. That's awesome. Pretty soon they'll be running away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One more. What's bringing you joy? Joy to, to see the church, all the young couples okay. attending our church. Good. Good. How about young singles? Do they bring you joy too? Okay, good. I just want to check. Just wanted to make sure. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. So, uh, next question. What are some standouts from last week? What are some things that you've been kind of thinking about, mulling over, questions you've been reflecting on as a result of our time together last week? Really, anything we talked about in class last week. Okay, good. Okay, very good. Thank you. And we're actually going to touch down on that one again tonight. So I'm going to teach a, a word from philosophy, not because big words are necessarily cool, but some, some of these words are useful. They just kind of capture a lot of stuff. So whenever you talk about people, beings, God, I just find this really helpful Whatever, whoever you're talking about. So it could be a person. It could be God. Think of them in two levels. So one word is ontology, right? The other word is function. What is ontology in philosophy? Anybody know? Sorry? Okay. And we could apply that to an animal, a tree, God. So it's really the study of being. So questions like, like, what is a human being? Not what does a human being do? That's a different question. What is a human being? 
So we talked about made in the image of God. Some people might say a mammal. There's different answers to the question, but your ontology is like who you are. It's being. Function is what you do. Never mistake the two. So you can be equal to a person in ontology and not equal in function, and you should be fine with that. So we, the illustrations we would give is in law. So we, we designate, okay, you're going to be the police officer. You are an agent of justice in a broken world. So you're a police officer. I'm not. So we say then Sam is functionally superior to me, but he's ontologically equal in his role as a police officer. Now, he's not a police officer, but just using him as an example. So when it comes to government, Justin Trudeau is ontologically the same as us, but in terms of federal governance, he's functionally superior and we're inferior. In the life of the church, we're all ontologically equal, but elders are functionally superior. In marriage, you're ontologically equal to your spouse, but the husband is functionally superior. So it's just really helpful because a lot of people confuse the two. Oh, you're in charge, that means you think you're better than me. No. Just saying I have a different role. It's, it, it relates to my function. I may be less competent, but that's my role. So that's kind of helpful to understand. So thanks for bringing that up, Nancy, because I think that is an important thing in life that answers a lot of questions in the church and outside of the church. Okay, what else? What else is a standout for you? Hmm? I didn't understand the uh, seriousness and the responsibilities of the church elders, or I wasn't quite aware of as uh, much as what we went into last week. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, so we gotta, we can't just think of elders as board men or guys running around figuring out who's going to cut the grass. You've got to think of it as a spiritual office, and it makes a world of difference. How about one more from the nosebleeds? Oh, yeah. Okay. The use of the word Catholic. So the word Catholic simply means universal. When you put a capital C on it, we're usually talking about the Roman Catholic or the Latin Church or the Western Church, as it was historically called. But you can call yourself a Catholic with a small c. And you're just using a historical word that means I'm part of the universal church. Right? Okay? Anybody in the back there? I know you all sat back there because you're hiding out. So I just wondered if a standout from last week. Nothing? Okay. Okay, I'll teach to you guys then in the back. All right. So we're going to talk tonight about the mission and the future of the church. So we're going to move from raw theology to what theology looks like applied in our daily actions, our priorities, all that kind of thing. So here's where we're going to get going. Um, the church exists for clear purposes. They're not ambiguous purposes. They are clear purposes. We're going to talk about several purposes slash practices of the church tonight. But God has not left us confused 
as to what the mission of the church is. In Matthew 28, he's like, hey, go and make disciples. So we're in the disciple-making business, and we ultimately are in the glorifying God business. Some people have more of a horizontal view of church life. So they would define the mission of the church as either our, let's say this is the church, our relationship to the unchurched, or if these people are both in the church, our relationship to each other. But that's an important conversation to have. We're going to talk about some things tonight we should be doing for one another. But these really are spin-offs of a greater mission, a true mission, and the way we describe it in our church is we exist to glorify God. So this is the vertical. Through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is what we call Jesus' statement in Matthew 28, where he says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always till the end of the age. So we, ours is a vertical focus in that we are placing ourselves in the second chair and God alone is on the throne. Now, you may hear that because I've used rather simple words to say that. So yeah, that's kind of basic. But if you open your eyes and listen carefully to how other churches function and other Christians function, some of them are going to line up with where we're at, but you're going to find a lot that are in fact very horizontal in their focus. So they're going to find define their mission in terms of social justice in the world, or loving each other, or those kinds of things. But the greatest commandment is not to love each other. What's the greatest commandment? To love God. Now, if you love God, out of that, you're obviously going to love other people because God is love and God loves people, but it starts with the vertical. So if the church exists for clear purposes, then the purpose of the church is my purpose as an individual. So we're not going to create a purpose over here for Aaron Rock and a purpose over here for Harvest Bible Chapel. We're not going to do that. It's tempting to do that. A lot of people act that way. They think the mission of the church is different than their mission. But biblically, the mission of the church is your mission, if you're part of the church, assuming you're believers. I, th I think you are. So things like uh, we're going to promote the mission of the church, that's something we can all do. We're going to guard and champion the mission of the church, that's something we can all do. We're going to encourage the mission of the church. Now this is where it, it differs from person to person. We're, we're going to engage in the mission of the church. But your engagement in the mission of the church is going to de differ depending on how God has wired you. So we talk about spiritual giftedness. So your engagement, person next to you probably has different spiritual gifts than you do. Spiritual gifts is a term, for those of you that may be new to Christianity, that we use of divinely given skills that exist for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and winning the world to Christ. So ta talents and skills are like, hey, I can sew, or I can program computers, or I can read or whatever, whatever skills, I can lay bricks. Those are skills or talents you have, but spiritual gifts are endowed on you by God at your conversion, 
and they sort of grow, just like a, a muscle grows with use, they grow with time. And the way you know what your spiritual gifts are is as you serve the Lord broadly, the areas you're bearing fruit in, that's an indication of your spiritual gifts. God's going to use your spiritual, your spiritual gifts to, to bear fruit. Secondly, you're going to start hearing words of affirmation from the people of God. Hey, you're a good encourager. You're a great servant. You're a good teacher, whatever it might be. And thirdly, the things that charge your spiritual battery, that's an indicator that they're your spiritual gifts. If they deplete you, you just don't really want to do it. It's just a drag. You're trying, like you genuinely want to, but it's just not your thing. That's also an indicator that it's not your spiritual gift. So you can have one, you could have ten, I suppose, but everyone's going to have different spiritual gifts. And um, all of them are couched, according to 1 Corinthians 13, in a love ethic. So the spiritual gifts, they'll charge your battery, they'll bear fruit, they'll be affirmed by the people of God. So don't, you, don't, you never self-appoint. Maybe I should have you all say that out loud. I will never self-appoint. Okay? You don't self-appoint yourself as a missionary, a pastor, a teacher, an encourager, a servant, whatever it might be. The people of God affirm your giftedness because we're not lone rangers. We've got to constantly fight Western individualism when it comes to our churches. We're such a product of individualism that we think of ourselves as just an island unto, unto ourselves in the sea called the church. That's not biblical. Okay? We're going to kind of pound that nail very deep tonight. So you listen, to, you listen to the affirmation of other people, and they affirm your giftedness, okay? So that's all preliminary stuff. So let's get into some actual actions and activities that are part of the church. If you're churched, you've been around church for a while, probably not going to share anything that you haven't heard in a very basic way, but my intention is not to be nouveau, what I do want to do is remind us of some things, and then I would like to stretch you and your understanding where we find this in the Bible, so that may be newer to some of you, and some of the nuances and some of the thinking that I've put into this may be of help to some of you as well, okay? So we're going to start off with to exalt or glorify God. So this is number one. So activities, the church... dedicates itself to. We exalt, or you might want to use the word glorify, God. This is God's mission, and so it must be the mission of his bride, which is the church. Let's look at some scripture. Let's go to Exodus 20, verse 5. One thing I really love about the Old Testament scriptures is they give us a very steep view of God. They help us to understand the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, the sanctity of God, the sovereignty of God. And some of what we encounter about God, especially in Old Covenant scriptures, makes us feel uncomfortable if we commit the following sin. We try to compare ourselves to God. So when certain things you read about God, and you're like, that doesn't make sense because I'm not allowed to do that. Okay. That's because you've just compared yourself to God. You're not God. God 
is so distinct and so lofty that he, this is rough language, is allowed to do or demand certain things that we're not allowed to do or demand. And one of them is to be jealous. So in uh, Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, now what, what, uh, what's going on in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. Kind of important? Fairly important. Look what he says. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. To what? Idols. Why? Why not? Okay, what? True, but why? What does the text say? Let's just look at the text. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What? How is God's jealousy different than ours? He's purity. So he really is jealously guarding holiness, righteousness, his set-apartness. When we're jealous, now we're not, we're not talking about, I mean, you could argue that being jealous for your marriage or jealous for God's glory, that would be a positive way of using jealousy. But when we're more selfishly jealous, what are we really trying to guard? Our best interests, self. Why is that a bad idea? Okay. We can excuse it and say, "Well, I'm, I'm just guarding. I don't know. I'm trying to uphold the Canadian Human Rights Code or something. I don't know. I don't want to get taken advantage of." Josh. The thing that we're jealous of? So self? Okay. Yeah, so if you're jealous jealous over something that someone owns that you don't own, it's, it's pride, it's ego. Really at the basis of every sin, deep down, if you, if you follow the breadcrumbs down, it is an, an issue of ego, of pride, of me wanting to be king or in charge or get attention or something like that, right? And the world's like, well, we we should build people up. We should increase people's self-esteem by helping them realize how great they are. And that's not a Christian perspective. Christian perspective is, if you want to call it your self-esteem, your sense of self, your image, that that increases with what? Sorry? (laughs) Okay, humility, which is a result of honoring God, and God has declared you to be valuable, righteous in his image. Like, it's all that stuff. So you think of your, your view of self. Your view of self will never truly and rightly increase by just looking at you and saying, actually, I am, I am a pretty cool guy. I am pretty dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever you're telling me to try to make me feel good. That's not a Christian perspective. My sense of identity is in Christ. It's bestowed upon me by God. It's gifted to me by God. It's for keeps. It doesn't ebb and flow depending on culture or mood or how much affirmation you're giving me. 
or not. It flows from my understanding of who I am in the eyes of my maker. And that's a very different kind of self-esteem, if you want to call it that. So the, the, so the world kind of has it upside down. They're trying to found it in you. We're trying to found it in God. So God is the original. He is the holy one. He is the all-perfect one. He's the pure one. And in some senses, you could also argue one of the benefits of God being jealous for his own character and being is it also guards us because we're made in his image and he's the one that declares us to be righteous. And if he in any way is diminished, well, in actual fact, everything that is under him is diminished as well. So when we make an idol or an image, a graven image as the old translations used to call it, what we're, that we're committing a double sin we're not only trying to replace God, but we're replacing ourselves because we are the ones that bear God's image. We don't need a graven image when we are the ones that bear God's image. We don't need an idol when God has declared us to be made in his image to be holy and righteous in his sight. So God does want to manifest his glory, but he wants to manifest it through us. He doesn't want to manifest it through a block of wood or a fancy car or your something that's temporal. He wants to manifest it through the things that he chooses to manifest it through. Isaiah 48, let's go there. So we start off God as a jealous God. That's one part of the puzzle. Now let's go to Isaiah 48, and we're going to look at verse 11. Maybe I'll have one of you read that. It's preferably someone reading from the English Standard Version, just because that's the one I have. Mark? For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how, how should my name be proclaimed? My glory I will not give to another. All right. So notice the repetitious, for my own sake, for my own sake. What does that sound an awful lot like? Yeah. Okay. Okay. For my own sake, for my own sake. It sounds a lot like Exodus 20, <laughs> what we just read. God is jealous. He's concerned about himself in the purest, most holy sense. Here he's again restating that. For my own sake, for my own sake. He's not going to let his name be profaned. That sounds a lot like one of the commandments. And his glory he will not give to another. So he will jealously guard his glory. God is, I don't even like to use this word because it's a very human word. God is concerned for his own glory. He's not concerned in the sense that there's really any way for him to ever lose it. I'm concerned that check won't come in the mail. I'm concerned that someone's going to forget something. It's not that kind of concern. Because God is going to do what God's going to do. But he's going to jealously guard his own glory. He will not give it to anyone else. Roman, let's go to the New Testament, Romans 15. If you are um, newer to Christianity, I would recommend at some point you memorize the books of the Bible in order. 
that you know you so just so you can kind of help find your way through the Bible. So if you've been saved for longer than like five years, you should know that by now. If you don't know it, you're behind schedule. Okay. So I may come up to you one time and say, "Hey, rattle them off." Okay. So just know them. It's easy to find your way around if you do that. Little tip. So Romans 15 verse nine. In this, let's just look at the context. Let's go back to verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who, who are the circumcised? It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression. There's a broader theology to it. When you're reading about, okay, Jewish people, because they were historically marked out by circumcision as a physical mark to show they were under the old covenant, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Name a couple. Okay. And in order that the Gentiles might, what? Glorify God for his mercy. God's going to show mercy, and what does he want for it? He wants to be glorified through it. Now, I could just keep going. Like We could look at a lot of different scripture tonight to talk about God's view of himself. The bottom line is God is very much concerned with his own glory. He's on a mission to guard it. He's going to keep it. No one's going to take it from him. All that kind of stuff. And of course, it's foolish in any, whenever anybody tries. Let's go back to Psalms. <clears throat> Psalm 40. We never say Psalm chapter. It's the only book of the Bible we don't identify by chapters because they're not chapters. There's 150 Psalms. So we just say Psalm 41, Psalm 45. We don't say Psalm chapter anything. So Psalm 40. <coughs> Look at verse 3. By the way, what kind of literature is the Psalms? Poetic. Poetic. What do you do with it? Sing it. So this is uh, the kind of the songbook of the Bible, which gives us insight into how ancient people worshipped God. And you might be interested in knowing it's probably the largest collection of songs from antiquity from any culture or religion. So that's just kind of a cool little bonus. You're not going to find this many, to the best of my knowledge, in any other ancient religion or, or just culture. They don't have to be religious songs, just in any, any culture. So Psalm 40, verse 3, whenever you, well, let's just read it. Uh, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How many of you have noticed, like you've taken note of this phraseology, new song, in the Bible before? Put up your hand if that's kind of stood out to you at some point. Or you, I know you've probably read it, but for, how many of you are like, oh, that's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Yeah. It's that awakening in our spirit, in our soul, in our way of Okay, good, I like that. An awakening in our heart, in our mind, in our soul. It can be an awakening, by the way, to something we already know, like we know the truth to be true, but it's never gone below the neck. And now it's like, man, this is like grabbing hold of me, like on a soul level, on a heart level. Okay, what else, Joe? Mm. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, Glenn? 
Good. Yeah, so tr Oh, sorry. Something daily every day. Every day. Okay. Good. Can you guys hear that in the back? It's like a promise, a new beginning. Good, Nate. That's great. <clears throat> so in the scriptures, our encounter with the Lord is never static. It's ongoing. It's unfolding. I always get a little concerned when Christians are like, yeah, I already know it all. No, you don't. You know very, very little, in fact. <laughs> I know very, very little. I may know more than a guy that's been saved for a week, but I know very little. And even what I know hasn't necessarily yet gone below my neck and kind of gripped me and affected me and transformed me. So as I've preached before, the Bible's true, yes or no? Is it more than true? Yeah, it's transformationally true. So it's supposed to transform us, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And this idea of a new song really is, is speaking in this context about worship. So he talks about a song of praise to our God. And the, the, the goal of worship, look at the second part of verse 3. Many will see, see it to be true, and fear blown away in a reverential kind of way by God and put their trust in the Lord. So God puts a new song in us, and worship then erupts from that encounter with God. And then get this. Worship, according to this verse, has a, I'm just going to call it a testimonial value to it. It's not just you and God hanging out, enjoying a good time. That new song, those encounters that you have with God, are meant to go out horizontally and affect others so that they can then have a vertical relationship with God. So if you picture the church, a whole bunch of people lined up, and God is ministering, let's say to this person, the new song. This person, through changed attitude, through their words, through their body language, through their prayer life, whatever it might be, is testifying to this encounter they've had with God, which affects this person and this person directs it back to God. They have an encounter, and it goes back to God. And then there's a back and forth to it. So we're all encountering God. Like, I can't, this person can't encounter God on this person's behalf. Is this like the sanctification? It's part of it, yeah, for sure. It's part of the process of growing in holiness. Now, some, many religions teach that this person can help not help, but this person can represent God to them through some high view of priesthood or has special access to God or whatever it might be. We're not into that. Everybody has, who's a believer has equal access to God, but the way that we're often stirred to desire greater access with God is by watching each other worship. By watch. So the Christianity has always been an incarnational faith. Jesus was incarnated as God, but he wants us to incarnate Christ into this world. That's why the church is called his body. We're called little Christs. That's what Christian means. And so we're constantly modeling or incarnating our encounter with Christ to one another. So I want you to think about this. The way you worship, 
Just think about this on Sunday. So just go back to this past week, just two days ago. Assuming you were in church. You should have been on Easter. Right? <laughs> Even the Catholics are in church on Easter. <laughs> so, um, assuming you were in church, were you, like, were you conscious of the fact that it's not just you and God? but that the way you worship is supposed to be a testimony so that others would see and fear him. Now, you're not putting on a show, but you're being real. You're being authentic. And through your worship, others see it. They're like, man, that, she has something I want. He's having an encounter I want. The fact that Jack's acting the way he's acting right now definitely means God's at work in his life. You can all laugh at that. <laughs> so there is a <laughs> so there's a testimonial aspect so I, I'm just throwing this out because we're talking about church life we're starting to kind of connect the dots through to worship already the way the church encounters God the way you view the life in the church, your role in the church, your place in the church, your relationship with God affects everyone else positively or negatively. I have several friends. I was just thinking about one today, actually, just kind of a little burden. I haven't seen him for probably probably close to 15, maybe even more, maybe even close to 20 years, but I don't know, we're Facebook buddies or whatever. And um, I would have considered him 20 years ago to be a pretty dynamic Christian, but I, I don't think he's living for the Lord at all today. And ultimately, he's responsible for that. But uh, he also hitched his wagon to some very dead churches. Some very dead churches. They weren't testifying about much of anything. They may have been spouting off pure doctrine on Sundays. But there was was no life there. It's just like another religion, but with the correct theology. And that saddens me because I know... and. If you've ever gone through a time where you're like ticked off at God, chances are you were also ticked off at God's people. And chances are there was something about God's people that led you there or at least influenced that. Chances are. Because it's very, 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 very difficult to have a vibrant relationship with God if you're on the outs with God's people or God's people are not acting the way that Jesus wants them to act. So this is why we concern ourselves with corporate worship because we know that corporate worship done well, done biblically, done passionately has a profound effect upon everybody else in the room and everyone else is listening in. And and that's not like a sociological thing. We're just aware that 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 works sociologically so we capitalize upon it. We think it's a biblical thing. So if I could be like really simplistic... I would say we want, in part, great worship because it draws people in. You're like, that sounds really horizontal. Well, if I just said that without referencing a verse, you would be right. But I'm saying that out of a theological view, that's a viewpoint that says we're supposed to worship in such a way that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So preaching is a vehicle for evangelism and spiritual growth. So is worship. Ever thought about that? The way we worship is a vehicle, a pathway for evangelism, 
for making disciples. Let's go back to uh, Romans 15, and we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Back to Romans 15. By the way, let me just say this from a pastoral perspective. What we just said also means we never want to be unnecessarily distracting in worship. Nancy? Yeah. So, yes and yes. So yes to the first question. Now, it's not all on Mark. I mean, God can work in churches that are very horizontal in their worship and still impact lives. But we might say God's working overtime doing what we're supposed to be doing. Oftentimes, God has to do in the church and in people's lives what we actually have been entrusted to do. And he just has to step in and do it because we ain't doing it. Well, I think there's a remnant that's always known it, but the reality is our Christianity is, is, is so often shaped by tradition and by what we see, and we do, we're, just, we're not particularly thoughtful. <laughs> we just kind of come and do, do it the way it's always been done. But I'll tell you who the honest people are, those that have left. Think of all the people that have just left the church, I'm, it's, and, and they'll say things like, well, I'm just not getting anything out of it. Okay, well, that might be because you're sleeping with your girlfriend every Saturday night. But it might be because the church is not vertical. The church is not worshipful. It's whatever. It's, it's just a, a service. It's a liturgy or it's a spiritual club or whatever it might be. Well, when, are you using like a proverbial we? Yes. Or, okay. Well... Yeah, I think there's a we in the church that hasn't been doing it right. Why in the beginning was that message not clear? How did we get off and started on a lesser track that we've maintained through the years? And I, and I agree, it, that's the way it's been, so that's mm. what we do. But how did we get started on the wrong track? Well, uh, ultimately sin, deception from our enemy, lack of reading scripture, Like in our church? Anybody who's doing it this way, this vertical approach. Well, that's just a word. That's just a word we use, but that's something we've always believed. I know since, you know, before we started using that word more around here, it's something we've always believed. So southward is not different from Harvard. No. No. The Vikings is common on this issue, too. you got some churches that are still, that's it, the book. It's 
young old Baptist, you know, and she raised her hand and she probably thought he had a disorder. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, and I, I understand that. I mean, you know, I come from a background that would make yours look liberal. Um, but we have to be careful. I would just say this before we move on. I would say we have to be careful to 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 process what we're hearing. And one of the things we often hear, which I, I never even agreed with when I was a little kid, is this is orderly. This is disorderly. How? Like, how is this orderly and this disorderly? Is this orderly and this isn't? This is and this isn't? This is and this isn't? Like, what, where's, the, where's the logic there? And, yeah, so, but sometimes we're distracted because we're wrong, because we're assuming it should be a certain way. Other times, like we would feel quite comfortable if someone was attention-seeking. Now, you have to be careful because you don't want to judge motives. So you want to look for patterns. You want to ask for discernment and prayer. The elders would have a conversation with someone about that. But here's the thing. Um, are we not distracting people from the glory of God by putting people in rows, putting a hymn book in their hands and keeping them in their seats and keeping them very still? Like, isn't that kind of distracting from the beautiful, passionate glory of God? Is that not communicating a certain thing about God that is not fully true? And I'll just say this too. If, if we actually take our cue from Scripture, I want men everywhere to raise holy hands in prayer, there's dancing in the Bible, there's dancing in the Psalms, there's hands held high in the Psalms, art in the catacombs, less than 100 years after Christ ascended to heaven. You're basically not going to find a depiction of Christian worship with hands down. They're all up. So if we want to take our cue from the Bible, and we don't want to, we want to be careful not to mandate form. Very careful. We want to understand function and allow for some fluidity of form. And we don't want to kind of say, this is the only way to do it, because this is the way everyone else is doing it right now, or this is the popular way of doing it. We never want to go there. But we do, we do want to allow for a certain measure of fluidity and expression, if you will. And that will be biblical and will be God-honoring if we have a solid view of what worship really is. And it's not, for me even though I hugely and significantly benefit from it, it's to bring glory and honor to God. Joe, you want to add? I was just going to say, one of the things I think more often than I kind of chuckle about is at a worship, we used to sing a song, and it was a hymn song that actually talked about raising your hands to the Lord. Yeah. And then not a single person in heaven would raise their hands. That's what did it for me. I started to feel like a hypocrite. Yeah. Before I was, when I was coming to, to uh, 
Canadian style church. Right. I always feel like uh, maybe somebody gonna feel uncomfortable. Mm. But when I used to go to Spanish church, Hidden Green Church, mm. uh, Christian church where I get baptized, over there people uh, go Canadian people goes and Spanish Latin Spanish speaking people goes to mm. and over there I just feel such a freedom. Because mm. over there is actually who doesn't know praise and sing yes. is is kind of weird. Yeah. And yeah. There and here is the contrary. So I became thinking about these two ways, and mm-hmm. I said I don't really. I just wanted to praise God right. because I'm so thankful to Him. Yeah. He's so wonderful to me and all the things that He's done. Mm-hmm. He is. I praise that even sometimes like you know my husband like. <laughs> The old white guy <laughs> sticking the mud. Yeah, you know. But I say I gotta be free because it's how I feel to praise yeah. him. I praise him. I don't. Well, let me let me let me, let me say this. Me. Let me say this. Do we have to be taught the Bible? Yeah, we're taught the Bible, right? There's teachers. Any place in the Bible that says we need to be taught to pray? Yes. Where? <laughs> That's what spurned the Lord's prayer. Teach us to pray. So why would we not assume that we've got to teach people to worship too? So you can't assume, well, I already know how to do it. No, we're always learning. We're learning. I'm learning the Bible. I'm learning to pray. I'm learning, I-N-G, ongoing, to worship. So I want to be learning to worship. I, want to, I don't want to get so horizontal and think, well, I've learned the form of worship, and that's where it's always going to be. So... Nathan. When I lived in Puerto Rico for nine years, I sang with my mother-in-law in her church. And she gave her thing, worship God through the infantry. Yeah, you married a Hispanic girl, too. You can hang out. What's that? He married a Hispanic girl, too. You can. Exactly. The emotions were very real. You know, yeah. Good. So just think about that. I mean, we, your personality is an asset, and it also can be a hindrance. And your culture is an asset, and it's a hindrance. I mean, just kind of be thinking about these things, Sam. I just I, I can't let this go without defending some of your godless. <laughs> this is a very one-sided conversation. There's a certain as you enter into. Can you hit the mute button, please? I should actually write this out and pass it. As you enter into a different uh, different places of worship, ours in particular is a gymnasium. Mm-hmm. So you, we enter into it. But people are taught, rightly or wrongly, from a, a young age, that they're entering the house of God. Right. And it should be treated and respected with a certain amount of reverence. And uh, mm-hmm. um, that, that's what you learn as you... Yeah. you now, you can change as you, as you get older, if you yeah. choose to, but changing is not always great. Like, just because something is yeah. different doesn't make it better. Yes. They're, they're, I think that we've lost a tremendous amount of reverence and respect for, for the church in different things. Mm. I, I see in, in different churches that, that I've attended and... Um, it yeah, I, I agree. It would hurt to go back to some of those yeah. things. Let's put it that way. I'm not, I'm not hugely interested in form. I'm, I'm suggesting the biblical forms are free game. 
Does that make sense? And hand-raising is a biblical form, so that's free game. I'm not hugely interested in form, though, because I've been in churches that would have a similar, let's say, genre of music as to what we would have, but it's not vertical. It's very much, there's something about it, you can feel it, it's more of an entertainment thing. So you've got to look for that, too. This is why we're very careful about the lyrics, about the spiritual life of our worship leaders. And we've had many worship leaders, Jake could testify to this, they're like, hey, I'm not really right with the Lord right now, I need to take some time off. Hey, kudos to you for being honest. So we're concerned about the spiritual life of the worship leaders. We teach them you're not a performer, you're a ministering servant. We don't aim for perfectionism, we aim for excellence. Uh, we pray. We have devos together. We study the Bible. All of that, none of that's going to fix it. We're always going to have an element of self in what we do. And, uh, but our, our intention, okay, the first thing is you've got to know the truth, know where you're headed. So we know that. Some churches, maybe they don't care about that. We care about that. And I don't want to make it like all them and us. I'm just saying some churches, many get it too. Because God's kingdom goes beyond Windsor, thankfully. But we get it. And now we're trying to align ourselves with it. But we're also trying to help people to understand why we do what we do. Because I don't want people to come to Harvest and say, I'm just here because I like the musical style. It's like, oh, Lord, help us, please. <laughs> because what if we want to change it? So that's not the point. But there was a period of time, probably about 10 years, where we had to hold like such a hard and fast line on style because everyone was like, trying to push us toward an old style, and it was not motivated by a holy desire. It was motivated by a stylistic preference. So for about 10 or 12 years, we wouldn't even allow a hymn in any of our worship services because we knew right away we'd have two congregations. And we just, we just wanted to guard ourselves against that. So, I mean, every church is picky and choosy. For example, you pick your language. We're going with English. We could worship in several different languages, but it would only benefit a small group. So these are good things to be thinking about. Okay, let's get to a couple more scriptures. So we're in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And uh, this is, the, this, you know, the, the, the human inserted heading here is the example of Christ, which is kind of a good one. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ. Anything radical there? Kind of sounds like John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer for the church, interest in unity. Sounds pretty generic for most Christians. Every, every church would be like, yeah, that makes sense. Why would we not want to live in harmony? Okay, but look at the reason. It's not just horizontal. I want you all to get along, love on each other. Okay, look at the next verse that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he basically says the same thing he said in verse 5. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Oh, and in case you didn't get it the first time, it's for the glory of God. So a church that says, hey, you know, you should come to our church because we're friendly. Who cares? Friendly at the mosque, too. We're... We're a community. Yeah, there's community at Starbucks, too. That's where everyone sits there and does their homework. 
There's a lot of other places that can pull off the horizontal and do it better than us. Much better. A lot of churches, oh, we're all under our programs. We got gym nights, and the YMCA does it better. We got kids camp, and the Qantas Club does it better. We got this and that, right? We're like trying to just do this horizontal stuff. But someone out there with more money and more time and more expertise is doing it better than us. So we don't just do stuff to keep you busy. Keep them in church every week. Keep the kids busy. Send your kid to youth group because they might you know, keep them out of the bars on Friday night. No. The stuff we do horizontally is to bring glory to God. And we want to do it with one voice. So I don't want to just do it by myself. And it's not biblical for me to just do it by myself. I should do it by myself. But I also want to do it with you. So harmony in the church. We talk about community, right? We're an uncommon community. Why are we uncommon? Is it because we do community better than secular organizations? No, it's because Christ is at the center. And we want to bring him glory. And we bring God glory as a community of faith in part through our harmony and unity and forgiveness and long-suffering and all that kind of stuff. So I, I hope this is really helpful for you as you just think about why we do what we do in the church. Okay, i got one more for you. 1 Peter 2, 9. I'm going to have one of you read this one. Two nine. Read it with enthusiasm, Nancy. Oh, yeah, I come on. The right version, sir. Sorry oh, you don't? Oh, okay. <laughs> you have the, what are you working with back there? I have from Jack the new international. Not bad if you're living in the seventies or eighties. Yeah, the new inspired version, right? Yeah, okay. Time to move into at least the late 90s. Okay, so who's going to read this for us? Yeah, Cornita? All right, awesome. So lots of stuff about who we are, like we're chosen, we're royal, we're holy. And then that you may proclaim it. So there's like that worship dimension to all of us as well. So it's, there's lots of talk about our identity early in the verse. And then when we understand our identity, we proclaim his excellency. That's how it works. You need to understand your identity because it will increase your worship life. If you have a crappy worship life, it's because you have a crappy view of who you are. If this church has crappy worship, it's because we have a crappy view of who we are. And that's why you get, to answer your question, a lot of horizontal worship because people don't have a true understanding of who they are in Christ, under God. They just don't. Not, I, I can tell you, you, know, you, you meet Christians who have been saved for like 30, 40 years. They don't have a clue about their identity. They just think, my, my Christianity boils down to this. God saved me from my sins. I'm going to heaven, and I go to church every week, and I know a lot about the Bible. Really? It's a good start. That's kindergarten. But what about, like, have you thought deeply about being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people? What does it mean, a people for his own possession? 
called it of darkness into marvelous light. I mean, there's just so much there that really affects how we approach God. So here's three questions. I want you to write these down. Uh, why is glorifying God hard? Why is glorifying God satisfying? And why is glorifying God informative for our church? Okay, let's start with the first one. Just We're going to spend like a minute or two max on these. Just kind of shout some stuff out. So no more than like a phrase at a time, okay? So why is glorifying God hard? Just shout it out. To surrender. To surrender. I'm going to re- try to repeat them for the recording. So. Pride. Pride. Easier to glorify self. Satan's against us. Satan's against us. We need to come before God with a repentant heart. Why is glorifying God hard? We need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. Okay, thank you. These are great responses. Why is glorifying God satisfying? Keep it vertical. It's our purpose. Surrendering. Who we're designed to be. It's what God desires we should do. Help us to understand who we are as a sinner. As we struggle, that God is giving us that change. Good. Excellent. How is glorifying God informative for our church together? How does it inform what, what we do and how we do it? Gives us vision. Who said that? Okay, good. Yeah, what else? Sorry? Sorry? Motivates us to get better and better. Stay focused. Good. Through testimony, it brings growth. Through testimony, it brings growth. Yeah. Nancy? Just that once again, we all come to, to the table with a variety of spiritual gifts, so mm-hmm. we're sharing we all, a more diverse Okay. We all come with different gifts. When we share, it brings greater glory to God or glorification. Yeah, Okay, okay, good. Yeah, good. Did I see a hand at the back? All right. So be thinking about these things. This is going to, if you actually take just what we've talked about tonight, this will, this is enough to keep you going for six months. Okay. Because there's so much to be, there's so, there's so many places where this, this affects how the rubber meets the road. This like affects everything. Just that centricity upon God being glorified and exalted. And the earlier you learn this in your Christian walk, the farther ahead you'll be 10 years in. Number two, preach the word. I told you you're not going to hear something you haven't heard before, but hopefully you can kind of bring it to life in a greater way. So let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. 
verse 19 and 20, tail under the spiritual armor and Paul's writing and he says, um, verse 19, so I want you to pray for perseverance and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Chapter 6 of Ephesians. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I could preach three sermons on that because there's just a lot there. Chapter 6. It's the very last part of the book of Ephesians. Verses 19 and 20. Pray. He's, he's asking the church, as I would ask you, to pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Why? Because we can be timid. To proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's a mystery to the unbeliever, to the sinner, to the person whose heart isn't enlightened. They may understand the words, but they don't get it. How many of you can remember a time when you heard the gospel and you didn't get it? Several, several hands. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. I remember, I was a little boy when I was converted, but I remember, I don't, I don't get it. I felt convicted, felt I was a sinner. I don't, I don't get it. Like, there's got to be some... For me, my stumbling block was there has to be a trick. That was mine. There has to be a trick. It can't be that simple. And when it was proclaimed to me clearly and boldly, the spiritual light went on in my mind. So many of us have had experiences like that. For which I'm an ambassador. So he views it as part of his identity. An ambassador heralds someone else's message. They don't make it up. He happens to be in chains, literally. And then again, that I may declare it boldly. So boldly in verse 19, boldly in verse 20. Obviously, he's concerned with boldness. As I ought to. Ought is what kind of a word? It's a verb. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a command. Definitive. It's very like, it's not like I maybe I should or not really sure if I should. No, I ought to. Someone says you ought to do that. You should do it. So is preaching merely a matter of style? We've made it a matter of style. Oh, who's my favorite preacher? Most people follow most. No, nobody in this room, of course. Many people, they follow their favorite preacher because they like the guy's style. Okay, well, that's fine. Hopefully he uses a tool to deliver it in a way that's compelling and urgent and interesting. Hopefully he speaks your language. But that's really not the essence of preaching. The essence of preaching is the proclamation of God's word and the making it clear to the person to whom it's not clear. My, my proof text for that is Ezra's example in, in uh, uh, either Ezra or Nehemiah when he read from the, the book of the law all day long in front of the people. They stood all day long, long church service, and he made it clear, explained it to them. So couple things that have to be part of preaching. It needs to be prayerful. Why does preaching have to be prayerful? Do we say, oh, I want you to pray for my preaching so that I sound spiritual? Or is there something more necessary 
to prayer. I want you to think about this. We're going to talk about prayer, but why pray before we preach? A lot of people pray before they preach. Most people do. But why pray before we preach? Well, it's the right thing to do. Not good enough. Why? Well, it's uh, guidance uh, uh, trained by, by God will help him uh, portray his name. Okay, so in that statement, use the word guidance. Very good word, Jack. In that statement, you've spilled the beans to us on your theology of God. And your theology of God is a correct one. And that is that God manifests his presence. That's the word we use. You can use whatever word you want. God manifests his presence through the prayers of his people. Meaning, okay, this is the world. God is here? Here? No, he's like, you know. To infinity. <laughs> I mean, he's not even a spatial being, so it's, it's kind of weird even to th think of God that way. But God is everywhere, right? But look at the Bible. God is, is God, has God always been everywhere? Okay, so what about the fiery furnace? They look in, oh, there's another guy. Messenger of the Lord or God himself, whatever. It doesn't really matter. The burning bush. Wasn't he already in the bush? Was he already in the bush? So why, why these Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord? Why, what are those? Th those are, that's not, oh, God suddenly showed up. That's God manifesting his presence. This is a, I would say this is probably, in terms of like keys to unlock the Bible, top 10 for me, easily. If you understand the difference between omnipresence and manifest presence, it's absolutely huge. It's, it's, it's probably, I think I'm being accurate. In my, in my life, this is probably the greatest, not just, not, I don't care about this word, but this idea is the greatest, has been the greatest help to me in my prayer life out of anything I've ever heard. Because before I was just like power of prayer, person of prayer, presence of prayer, all the P's and everything else, and the three-point sermons and all that. I was like, I still don't, I don't fully get it. But when you talk about prayer as calling God into the room or into the marriage or into the church or into the sermon or into the hospital ward or whatever, that makes all the difference in the world. That, makes it, that, that connects all the dots. So we pray when we preach, not just because, well, it's Christian. We were in a church, we should be praying a lot. We pray to call his presence into the sermon. So we want God to overtake, to overcome, to overwhelm, to go beyond, to work with the weaknesses of the preacher. So that when the preacher is proclaiming the word of God, that it's as if you're hearing from God. He's not God. But he is proclaiming the word of God to you as if you're hearing from God. Because we're calling for him to manifest his presence. So we take preaching very, very, very seriously. And it's exhausting work. We take it so seriously 
that at times we try not to make it look so serious because we know it can be overwhelming. But we're being very serious even when we try to make it not look quite so serious. You know, the joke, the sidebar, the commercial, whatever you want to call it. It's very serious. Must be bold. So boldness. Very helpful because, back to the root issue of pride, the reason why it's hard work to preach bold sermons, it's not hard work to preach angry sermons if you've got the right personality. I could do that. I'm a mean enough guy. It's not hard work to preach mean sermons. It's not hard work to preach condemning sermons. Because those, those can be adequately fueled by your own broken humanity. That's no problem. But it's difficult to preach bold sermons because God has said some things that are rather difficult to hear. Can we agree on that one? And when you're the one preaching it and speaking it, if it's true that God is manifesting himself and his word through the preacher because you've prayed before you preached, then the people are hearing God's word proclaimed to them in the act of preaching. But they finger you as the preacher. I don't like what this guy has to say. Really what they're saying, if that person is prayerfully delivering to them the word of God, they don't like God. But we're not so brave to say that. So I don't like that guy. Okay, I understand there's jerk preachers and people that are preaching horizontal that you may not like. But boldness is very difficult. So I would say I probably have an unusually high ability to say what I think. Susie, you've known me for a little while. Would you say that's pretty accurate? Maybe about 15 or 10. Okay, 15 or 10. <laughs> Beth, you're my sister-in-law. I've known you for 20 years. Yeah. Okay, Jay, you know me for a while. Okay. More often than not, I'm scared to death to preach. Maybe like, oh, that doesn't make sense. You're lying. I'm telling you the truth. Hand in the Bible. I don't want to be there. Kind of like rather be anywhere else because know, there's just so much going on. It's like you're on the spot. You're being evaluated. You're going to say things that people might not like. I'm not, what is it, a sadist? Is that, what's the word for a person that likes to, hurt themselves. Matt, say Damascus. I'm not one of those people. So I'd rather you like me and us just be friends and on and on and on. Right? So it, uh, to preach, other people in this church preach, to teach God's word and to say, especially like if you're confronting people, church discipline, it's, it's very difficult. So we pray for boldness. And here... Here is one of the greatest helps to be able to preach with boldness. We preach without apology. Now just to say, if I just say, the way to preach boldly is to preach without apology, what I mean by that is never apologize. Well, okay, that's still human. But what I really mean is, far be it from me to ever apologize to this creature for what the creator has said. That's really what we mean. And that is so helpful. So if I really believe that this book that I hold in my hand is the word of God, and God has delivered it to me, why would I apologize to you if I'm telling you what God has said? 
And what that also does is that helps you to preach with humility and not to mistake, well, lack of apology means being mean or blunt. You don't always have to be blunt to preach without apology. A lot of different personalities can preach without apology. Softer men than me can preach without apology. But it's so helpful. If you believe this is the word of God, you have a high view of Scripture, then you can preach because you're like, hey, I'm just a creature here. God said it. I'm not going to apologize to people. And if you think about it, even though, even though I, I doubt there's any preachers out there apologizing for the word of God who are super conscious of this, at least God help them if they are. But a lot of guys soft-pedal the Bible because they're concerned about offending you. And they're, they're concerned about offending you because their view of church is horizontal. But when you realize that it's actually a vertical encounter, it's God manifesting his presence in the church, that's what really matters. This is God's word. This is the only thing that changed, not my little tricks to try to keep you in the room. Then you can preach without apology and let God do what he, he does. He, he sees fit. And if God cho- chooses in a particular generation to grow the church through the unapologetic preaching of the word of God, then that's awesome. And if he chooses to reduce the size of the church through the un- unapologetic preaching of the word of God, then so be it. Because let's not assume that because a church is growing, it's necessarily biblical. And let's not assume because a church is shrinking that it's necessarily unbiblical. That's very reductionistic. There's lots of times when God separated the wheat from the chaff. And if you have a basket, it looks a whole lot more full of wheat and chaffer in it. But if you remove the chaff, there's not as much in the basket. But you would now have something that's actually of value. So sometimes the church is reduced. We know in history, sometimes the church, in order to be biblical, was reduced in its numerical size. This is why when we think of church, we always think of quality over quantity. Having said that, we are concerned with quantity for this reason and this reason alone. Because quantity equals more disciples. And more disciples are what? Souls, loved and precious, created in the image of God. So, of course, I would rather preach to 10 people than two. But not because it's all about numbers. It's, it's about souls. And now I get 10 souls instead of two. Why would I not want 10 over two? But it's not just let's go for 10. No, it's quality of discipleship. So if I have to pick between 10 ignorant people who have no interest in growing and two that really do, you go with two. So this is kind of how we balance out in our thinking the whole quantity versus quality kind of thing. And the third thing that helps from this text, helps us to be bold in our proclamation, is this whole idea of being an ambassador. <clears throat> Think of uh, our government, the American government, Swiss government, Somalian government. Governments pick people that are loyal to the crown or the republic or the democracy or the dominion or whatever. And they send them to another country to represent the will and wishes of that nation. And in a sense, that person is the incarnation of the will and wishes of the person that sent them. That's kind of how ambassadorship works. This is why you get like immunity and all that kind of stuff because you're 
You're just some guest hanging out in someone else's country. You're an ambassador. And this is why every country sees it as very egregious when anybody attacks an embassy. Why would you do that? Like, that's just out of bounds. As a preacher, seeing yourself as an ambassador is incredibly helpful. When I say preach, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm a vocational preacher, so I, that's all I know. But those of you that teach, preach, proclaim the word of God, lead a small group, it all applies. Understanding that you're an ambassador, you're heralding a message from a king, is very helpful. Make sure that you represent him precisely, accurately, apologize when you didn't. Don't apologize for him. You're an ambassador. So I don't even really need to take... Do I? Yeah, because I'm a broken down human being. Sometimes I take offense when people don't like what I say. But if what I've said is in fact what God has said, and there are times in preaching when you say something that's not accurate, we understand that. But if you said what God has said, and the person, again, is upset or offended, hey, I'm just, I'm heralding a message from a king here. I heard from a king, he's... He has something that you need to hear. It's very helpful and informative to approach preaching that way. So the second task of the church is to preach. Let me take you to one more verse. 2 Timothy 4.2. Timothy 4.2. Have you ever been to a, like a, a military swearing-in ceremony or the swearing-in of a politician or a police officer or something like that? It's, it's kind of like significant, right? Maybe an ordination. This is how this passage begins. I charge you, and then it gets really weighty, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then it gets even weightier. Who is to judge the living and the dead? And by his appearing and his kingdom. Oh, what's coming next? This is like, whoo. And here's what it is. Preach the word. That's how seriously God takes it. Preach the word. When should I do that? What are the parameters, Lord? Here they are. Be ready in season and out of season. We could say when it's popular, when it's not, when there's opportunities, when there's not, when you're licensed to do it, when your license is expired. Duck hunting has a season, preaching doesn't. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Okay. Then the warning. For the time is coming... When people will not endure, they won't put up with it. It's too weighty. It's too difficult. It's not exciting enough. I've got other things to do on Sundays. Sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Hey, buddy, fulfill your ministry. Such a, such a clear, compelling, weighty charge from God. When we proclaim God's word, we're preaching it. And lots of people won't want to hear it. But you look for the following things in good biblical preaching. Is there some reproof going on? Is there some rebuke going on? Is there exhortation? Is there patience? Is there teaching? And when you're preaching to the church, just thinking about this, I don't even remember why. There must have been some situation that, 
happened, and if it involved you, I apologize. Because okay. <laughs> I don't remember, honestly. Fortunately, I remember very little. I make a great count, so I don't remember it. Okay. So we have uh, Romans 8.1. And we have the word, there's therefore no condemnation. Now, when you hear unapologetic preaching from whoever's preaching, and you're getting that, like the reproof, the correction, do you ever feel like you're being condemned? Come on. Yes. I mean, I do sometimes. Are you condemning right now. me? Right now. Right now? Okay, so we got one honest student. <laughs> Any cookie? Give her a cookie or something. <laughs> So you'll hear people, that church is judgmental, or that preacher is... Now, some people do practice condemnation in sermons. I think that's some sort of a motivator. And I would probably have to admit that I've done that too. But it's so freeing and helpful and encouraging when people say I was convicted. That's a different word. So conviction... Okay, this is what we aim for. Check mark. This is not what we aim for. This is X. Yeah, he does. Preaching to the church. Unbelievers are condemned already. They need to sometimes be aware of it. When it's preaching to God's people who've been freed, we aim for conviction. We aim for, I'm not saying that we... We sit down and strategize how to bring that about. I don't even think about that. Just preach the word of God and let God do what God does. But we're comfortable, and you should always be comfortable when God brings conviction into your life. You're like, hey, God's working. You go to church like, I felt convicted. Good. I felt condemned. Okay, either the preacher messed up or you're not thinking clearly. That's not the goal. So t when preaching to the church, we're aiming for conviction. And I ha we have to get to a place in our lives where conviction, even though it, it hurts, feels good. You guys get that? It's like, I don't want it, but I want it. I don't like it, but I love it. Because I know where it leads. And if you look at this text, the, the, th the three words, reprove and rebuke and then exhort, Two out of the three are really conviction words. One of them is more of a building up kind of word. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, you need to divide your sermon into three parts and 66% you know, of it should be reproof. And I'm just saying that it's a significant part of biblical preaching. And I would just say, for those of you that teach or preach, the best advice I can give to you is, if you want to teach and preach that way, let the Word of God do that to you first. And if the word of God does it to you, then you're testifying really in your sermon, or your lesson, or your life group lesson, to what God is doing in your life. And that, that's going to come through. It doesn't mean that you need to share every detail. Sometimes people don't need to hear the details. It's not redemptive. It's just self-gratification. But... Let people know how the word of God has washed over you at times, and that's going to help it to wash over them. Because the basic principle, you need to believe this. If you don't believe this, we're more alike than we are different. It's amazing how alike we are. We, we emphasize our differences. Oh, you're a guy, you're a girl, you're black, you're white, you're from Asia, you're from Africa, 
you have a master's degree, you didn't even finish grade six, you're eight, you're 88, you know, you have two legs, you're missing a leg. We emphasize all the differences. But human beings are incredibly alike. Incredibly alike. Counselors know this, good counselors. It's like predictable. Like someone starts telling you it's a different storyline, it's the same issue. Issues. There's like only like 10 things people really even struggle with. It just manifests itself differently. So, um, because if, if the Lord has gripped you with it and you communicate that to people, it'll grip them too. So when I teach and preach, I almost kind of like preaching in my own head. And as I let it kind of swirl around my head and then take the form of words and communicate it to you, I just let God do what he does. And more often than not, it does the same thing for you that it did for me. But the way I was taught to preach is not like that. The way I was taught to preach was more, and, and I do think this is the way to start, but it's like parse every word, study every little angle, like know the meaning of every word forward and backwards, all the cross-references, read and read and read, write and write and write. Like make sure that it's absolutely the most crystal clear commentary style, verse by verse, explanation of, I could do that, and you'd probably be quite impressed. But I don't think you'd necessarily be particularly impacted. So you, you need to do that. Like You need to get to a point where you understand what the Bible is, in fact, saying. So if there's a word, I don't know what that word is, I've got to look it up. If there's a thought, oh, I can't get my mind around that, I've got to do that. But as you mature and grow... I would just say maybe this is like discernment-based preaching or something like that. I get into the text, try to understand it, and then I allow it to grab hold of me. And when I've allowed it to grab hold of me, then I'm ready to preach it. I'm just, I just got to form it up somehow. Put an outline together or whatever. So that's like incarnational preaching. All right, so enough on that. We're going to cover another one now. Okay, so we got exalting God, preaching. And third, we kind of already touched on this under another subject. Pray. So this is like we're talking about what, are the, what is the mission of the church, what's the church do? Pray. Ephesians uh, 6, 18. Ephesians 6, 18. We looked at 19 and 20. Verses uh, like Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Okay, 619, 618, sorry. Praying once in a while <laughs> at all times in the Spirit. Now, there's actually, if you want to get into the meaning of words, this could mean praying at all times with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, but because there's like we put a capital on this, this could be like in your spirit, your spiritual life, praying at all times in a spiritual way. It could mean that too. This translation m makes the call for us, I guess, and goes with the Holy Spirit. Either one of them is actually theologically accurate. 
based upon the broader reading of Scripture. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So the supplication is like the request side of prayer. And I've already taught a little bit on this tonight, but let me just give you uh, four points. Number one, notice it's part of spiritual warfare. So the devil loves you or hates you? Hates you. Why does he hate you, by the way? Because God loves you. Very good. You're made in the image of God. He wants to thwart God in any way he can. So it's part of spiritual warfare. So praying is more than a spiritual discipline. It is a discipline, but it's more than a spiritual discipline. We don't want to reduce everything down to like little catchphrases, but it might be if you're struggling with like demonic attack or demonic oppression in your life, it's because your prayer life is very weak. And it's not about quantity of prayer. Again, it's more about quality. The Lord's Prayer is rather short. You can pray it in about 45 seconds, and it's the model prayer. So I don't really care how many hours you're made. You see these statistics. The average person prays X number of minutes a day. Who cares? I couldn't care less. I'd rather hear a per person pray fervently for five minutes than an hour and a half, and it's all drivel. I don't even like statistics like that. I'm not sure what purpose they serve other than to get all legalistic and guilt trip people. Anyway, it's part of spiritual warfare. Manifest presence, we've already taught on that. That's key. Praying at all times in the spirit, calling upon God's presence. Okay. So here's the third thing. In the Lord's Prayer, one of the choice phrases is <coughs> this one. Your kingdom, what? Come. Have you thought much what that means? Sounds cool. We all prayed it. Well, some of us prayed it in public school. <laughs> We've prayed it in church. You go to a, I don't know, things that aren't even Christian, and they pray it. Your kingdom come. Hmm. Daily bread, get it. Help me to forgive others, get it. Deliver me from evil, get it. Your kingdom come. That's our Ah, okay. Why are we praying for it n now? Is this just a futuristic prayer? How many of you would say this is futuristic, and how many of you would say it has something to do with now as well? Okay, it's both? Okay. So it's now, and it's not yet. What does it mean, though, to pray? Okay, I, th I think the not yet is kind of an easy one. But what, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come now? Okay, let's just look at the word kingdom. If you have a kingdom, you are what? No, if you have a kingdom. Yeah, you're a king. Okay. So if you have a kingdom... You're a king. And kings historically sit on thrones, and they're exalted, and they're in charge and all that. So really, well, whenever we see expressions like this in Scripture, your kingdom come, or we're looking for the kingdom of God. Disciples often talk about that. Really, if you just boil it on, they're saying, we want God's rule to be evident. Okay? So we want, when we pray your kingdom come, we want 
we're not saying we want God to become the king. We're not saying that, are we? Like as if our prayers somehow make him the king all of a sudden? No. We want God's rule to be evident. And in my head, evident is the same as manifest. We want God's kingdom reign to be evident. So, so <coughs> where does that start? If I pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, I want your reign to be evident. Where does that start? In yourself. I'm afraid I Oh, I hope it's evident in best life. How about mine? I hope it's evident in Ian's marriage. How about my marriage? That's where it starts. So it is a very vulnerable but precious prayer. When we say, Lord, your kingdom come, we want, I want your reign to be evident in my life. In other words, I want to be, you know what a conduit is? Sam, have you ever heard of a conduit? Absolutely. You bent a few in your electrician career? It's a path which we direct power and yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a pipe. You pull your wires through. Yeah. So we want to be the conduit. And we want to be the conduit individually, and we want to be the conduit as a church. So let's just think about this, because, we're, again, we're starting to get into the worship stuff. If we are biblical and we pray, your kingdom come, shouldn't it be evident to other people, even to unbelievers, if they come into a worshiping setting. I'm not talking about a church building, but when they see the people of God worship the church meet, shouldn't it be evident that God is on his throne? Do you think that's always evident? It's easy to try to make it evident by trying to make your church look like the hall that a king would rule in, but that's just all surfacy. We want the church to radiate it? Yeah, you can use that word if you want. Oh, are you asking me? Is he asking me? Oh, I thought you were asking me to... Oh, okay. 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 I'm like, could you not say it differently so I can say it to him? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's good, Nathan. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. What would be uh, some examples? How would we know it's your? Ultimately, it's kind of a motivational thing, so it's a little difficult. But there would be a lot of God talk, a lot of humility, a lot of unapologetic preaching, unafraid witness. What's that? Some unashamed adoration you know, <laughs> taking place in the church. Yeah, probably some unceasing prayer. Yeah. And coffee. And coffee. So the, <laughs> we call them the five pillars. <laughs> okay. Um, some people will mistake confidence for arrogance. So they'll accuse, it's all about your, people, people have pulled this one on me. Oh, you just want your church to grow. Really? Well, how about you worry about you? <laughs> because 
you have no capacity to climb inside my head and heart and analyze me. I have enough trouble analyzing myself. You definitely aren't qualified. So there's some of that going on. But there, there is like a... There, there, is, there does need to be soul-searching because even in the life of the church and the kingdom of God, it can so easily become the kingdom of us. So that's why I like to use um, a couple things I've heard from other harvest pastors. One in particular is never make yourself the hero of the sermon illustration. That's kind of helpful. Um things I've heard from other preachers over the years, preach to your weaknesses, not your strengths. Um, you know, be vulnerable in your preaching, your teaching, and in your sharing of your testimony. Like, I, I'm, I'm not... It's awesome when God saves the guy that murdered three people, buried them in his backyard, was the head of hell's angels, and was radically converted you know, in jail or whatever, prison. Um, but that's not normal. Like, that's not how it happens for most people. But one can take even, like, a terrible past and draw attention to themselves. I have a friend who passes a church down in Illinois, and he was into gang life and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And he said, I used to... He just shared this with us. We saw him in Phoenix a couple months ago. He says, um, when I was a younger Christian, I used to take pride in how bad I used to be when I'd share my testimony. So even there, you're sharing like how terrible you were and how much God's redeemed you, but you're kind of proud of it because it's a cool story. And the guy beside you, like, oh, I was saved at eight in Sunday school, and that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so. Um, so it's amazing how you can turn something awesome into something sinful. <laughs> And preaching can become sinful, and prayer meetings can become sinful, and church life can become sinful, and eldership can become sinful, and all that stuff can become sinful. Our name can become sinful. So we always have to be careful about that kind of thing. Just make sure we're doing business with the Lord. Okay, so um, I, got, I have two questions for you, and this is where we're going to end tonight. Uh, okay, here's the first one. How does prayer make a church's life, and how does, church, how does prayer break a church's life? So who would like to, sh- let's go with the first one. How do you think prayer can make a church's life, like biblical, great, God-glorifying? Okay, it brings unity. Okay, good, very good. Shows dependence. Oh, now there's a feud over who's more dependent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, what else? Okay. Okay, that, that's good. Gold star for Jordan, too. That's caught for Jordan. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, how else does prayer make a church's life? Yeah, and if God is here and God is moving, like it's just so awesome. I don't know what other word to use. It's just so awesome to see God moving in a church. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. But when you see God moving in the life of a church, that's just really awesome. And it doesn't mean that we don't take care of the other things. 
like the grass still has to be cut as unexciting as unexciting as that is. And we still got to figure out like where are we going to put people on Sunday? <coughs> Rather not be thinking about that, but we have to think about that. But really what we're excited about is God just moving in our church in all venues just kind of doing his work and we're like the kind of like the bystanders just watching God just clapping him in, ushering him in, just letting God do his thing in the church. Good. How does I guess we would have to say a lack of prayer, break a church's life. Simple question, but let's think about this. What is the result, or shall we just say the consequence, of a prayerless life, of a prayerless church? Okay. It's kind of, kind of huge. Yeah. Let's detail it out a little bit. Ephesians 6. Yeah. Yeah. Self-conscious, like then there's more stress and worry. And if you're like my personality, you can just default to, well, I'm going to manage my way through this. I'm going to administrate. I'm going to think my way through this. I can think my way through this one. Well, okay. And at the end of the day, what do I have to show for it? No fruit. Joe? I was just going to say, you end up focusing on the thing that you can or you perceive that you can control. Yeah. Yeah. You know the old line, there's, not, there's no better place to be than in the center of God's will. It's, it's kind of like cliche, but it's, it's, let's just resurrect it. It's so true. <laughs> like to be in the center of God's will. And if you're not in the word and you're not in prayer, you're not going to know what God's will is. I mean, you're going to know, we always know the, the broad. They're in the Bible, the broad ones. But to kind of like live day by day knowing that you're kind of where God wants you to be, that's, that's just a really freeing feeling. I think someone used freedom in some other context today, maybe Josie, but that freeing freedom, a feeling of being in the center of God's will, knowing this is what, even if the day wasn't all that like measurably awesome, it was still awesome. Okay, let's go with one more. How can a lack of prayer, and I'll reference you back, I'm kind of hinting here, Ephesians 6. It's also called a lack of integrity. Lack of integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And spiritual warfare. I, 
I think this is maybe undertaught or underthought about. And I mean, I, I, I'm not privy to everything the devil does, obviously. And I don't know the full mind of God. But I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and my discernment component says this to me. That if I was the devil, and I wanted to take out Christians in the West, I would appeal to their weakness. And their main weakness is not believing in me. Or they're in a culture that doesn't believe in the supernatural. Even their churches demonstrate they're not all that supernatural. Like everything's kind of <coughs> cut and dried and organized and managed and very corporate-like. It's not that those things in and of themselves are bad, but those can be, those can create blind spots. So it's like, well, I, I, yeah, I know the devil exists in theory, but I don't know. Has he really tempted me? Is he really oppressing me? No, I don't think so. And that, he can kind of like lull us to sleep. And maybe it's his lulling us to sleep that in fact is where he's getting the victory. It's not like in some other context where they're scared of manifestations of evil. So the devil shows up in bright lights or in boogeyman or witch doctors that are screaming and terrifying people. That works in that culture. That doesn't work here. We'd be like, get lost. But here is like lulling us to sleep. We don't think we're in a spiritual battle. We think we're just kind of managing our way through life. And prayer awakens us to the spiritual realities around us so that we can adequately do battle with them. Every person here is in the devil's crosshairs, without question. And he's going to prey on your weakness. And your weakness might be, well, he's not really around. That may be your weakness. For many of you, that probably is. He's not really paying attention. He's paying attention to some kook downtown that's strung out on drugs. No, he's, he's focusing on you too. And he knows your weaknesses, and he will exploit them. So prayer, I don't want to... I don't want to like you take this visual too far, but it's kind of like the um, you know the plastic tent that someone is in who is hyper who has who has no immunity. You know the like the the boy in the bubble kind of thing. It's like the place of protection. In a sense, prayer does that it, it, because God. The reason why prayer becomes like your bubble in a positive way is because where God's presence is manifested, the devil doesn't want to be there. So the greater God's presence is being manifested in your life, the less the devil wants to be there. Because then he's really not picking on you. He's picking on God. God is there. God is alive. He's working. So you're doing yourself a great favor by being a person of prayer because that hinders the devil from attacking you and God steps up and does what God can do. At the same time, if you're like, well, I'd always figure it out myself. God don't need you on this one. Not praying, therefore your presence is not evident or manifest right now. Then perhaps God's like, okay, well, Go for it then and see how well you do against the devil because I kind of think you're somewhat incompetent compared to him. So this is why we're called to prayer because prayer is not just, again, it's not just something we do. It serves a purpose of God being present. And when God is present, the devil does not want to be there. At his name, he will flee. See? <laughs>